and 30. 29 and 30. Now, the last time we had seen Jacob, we had just started his story, and he had spent the night at Bethel, and he had become a changed man. He was no longer that same trickster person, right? He was supposed to be someone different. He learned that God was with him wherever he went. And that no matter where he was, whether he was in the Holy Land, or whether he was going off to Laban, wherever he was, God was going to be with him, and God was going to take care of him. Because there were angels attending him. Again, fearing the Lord. And, and we know, again, because the Bible tells us that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. It's a good thing to fear the Lord. So when Jacob starts fearing the Lord, that's a good thing. And now, as we continue with Jacob, we're going to start to see his daily walk of life. That daily walk of learning to trust God more as all the bad things start to happen. Because bad things are going to start to happen to Jacob because Jacob still has to live with the consequences of his actions. He chose to trick his father. And then he was scared of Esau and he had to run away. And he has to live with that. But today, we will see that as he goes through these things, and some of the most important parts of his life happen, what we'll see is that God is in control. And God's sovereign hand guides the action. That Jacob is always taken care of, even as he goes through these trials. That's my principle today. That's what we're going to seek to recognize, is God's sovereignty over the issues of life. So we'll start with God's sovereignty over marriage. Let's read verses 1 through 14. So Jacob went on his journey and came to the land of the people of the east. And he looked and saw a well in the field. And behold, there were three flocks of sheep lying by it. For out of that well they watered the flocks. A large stone was on the well's mouth. Now all the flocks would be gathered there, and they would roll the stone from the well's mouth, water the sheep, and put the stone back in its place on the well's mouth. And Jacob said to them, My brethren, where are you from? And they said, We are from Haran. And then he said to them, Oh, do you know Laban, the son of Nahor? And they said, Yeah, we know him. So he said to them, Is he well? And they said, He is well. Uh, look, his daughter Rachel is coming with the sheep. And then he said, Look, it is still high day. It is not time for the cattle to be gathered together. Water the sheep. Go, feed them. But they said, Ah, we cannot till all the flocks are gathered together. And they have rolled the stone from the well's mouth. Then we water the sheep. Now while he was still speaking with them, Rachel came, from the with, came with her father's sheep, for she was a shepherdess. And it came to pass, when Jacob saw Rachel, the daughter of Laban, his mother's brother, and the sheep of Laban, his mother's brother, that Jacob went near and rolled the stone from the well's mouth, watered the flock of Laban, his mother's brother. Then Jacob kissed Rachel and lifted up his voice and wept. And Jacob told Rachel that he was her father's relative and that he was Rebekah's son. So she ran and told her father. Then it came to pass, when Laban heard the report about Jacob, his sister's son, that he ran to meet him, and embraced him, and kissed him, and brought him to his house. So he told Laban all these things. And Laban said to him, Surely you are, bone of, you are my bone and my flesh. And he stayed with him for a month. So we should see God at work right away. God at work right away. Jacob comes to the well and immediately meets the people he needs to meet. He's able to ask them, hey, do you know this person? I'm looking for this person. Oh, yeah, she's, she's over there. Right? She's similar to, to Isaac's servant, who first showed up to the well, said a prayer, and she shows up right away. She shows up right away. He finds who he's looking for. That's part of God's work. That's God doing that and making those things happen. And as part of Jacob's story, he then meets a very interesting man, Laban. Part of Jacob's story, he meets Laban. Let's continue with 15 through 30. 
Then Laban said to Jacob, Because you are my relative, should you therefore serve me for nothing? Tell me, what should your wages be? Now Laban had two daughters. The name of the elder was Leah, the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah's eyes were delicate, but Rachel was beautiful of form and appearance. Now Jacob loved Rachel, so he said, I will serve you seven years for, for Rachel, your younger daughter. And Laban said, uh, It's better that I give her to you than that I should give her to another man. Stay with me. So Jacob served seven years for Rachel, and they seemed only a few days to him because of the love he had for her. Then Jacob said to Laban, Give me my wife, for my days are fulfilled that I may go into her. And Laban gathered together all the men of the place and made a feast. Now it came to pass in the evening that he took Leah his daughter and brought her to Jacob, and he went into her. And Laban gave his maid Zilpah to his daughter Leah as a maid. So it came to pass in the morning that, behold, it was Leah. And he said to Laban, What is this you have done to me? Was it not for Rachel that I served you? Why then have you deceived me? And Laban said, Oh, it must not be done so in our country to give the younger before the firstborn. Fulfill her week, and we will give you this one also for the service which you will serve with me for still another seven years. Then Jacob did so and fulfilled her week. So he gave him his daughter Rachel as his wife. And Laban gave his maid Bilhah to his daughter Rachel as a maid. Then Jacob also went into Rachel, and he also loved Rachel more than Leah. And he served Laban still another seven years. So Laban. Laban is a bigger trickster than Jacob. It looks like he's met his match, someone who can outthink him. Uh, in fact, this is Jacob getting to reap what he has sown. What, what we see here is, is God's wonderful sense of irony at work. It's just really quite humorous. Um, Jacob tricked his father, so who better to trick him than his father-in-law, right? Jacob tricked Isaac because of a birth order issue, and Laban tricked Jacob because of a birth order issue. Jacob tricked Isaac by dressing up as Esau. Well, Jacob was tricked by someone dressed as someone else. This is, this is pure God at work. Right? That wonderful sense of irony God displays through all of his work, through all of his words. But what we see here, what we should understand, is that marriage is not a random encounter. It's a decision from God. It's a decision from God. He gives us the person he has ordained for us, or he keeps us single, both of which are his will, both of which are up to him. Marital status is not about us being happy. It's not about us finding the one person for us. It's about sanctification, how God can use this other person to make us more like Christ. Marital status is also not a choice. It's God's will. It's not always people's choice. and It's not our choice to be married or to be single. That's up to God. Him at work is what that is. So we should learn a few things from these reminders. First, when we meet people, we can have confidence that God is at work. God is at work. We can be bold and assured of our faith. We can know our place with God. Next, it also means that we can be honest with people. We don't need to impress people by bragging, by showing off, by being something that we are not. We don't need to build ourselves up because we have God at work. And this goes beyond marriage. We can connect with people from any walk of life, anywhere. It doesn't have to be just marriage. In fact, this is the only way to share our faith and to witness to the world, to connect with people honestly. We're never going to share our faith and share the gospel through lies and deceit. 
We serve a God of truth. So we must be truthful. And finally, we learn that we must practice patience. We can live without scheming. We can live without plotting because God will work in our lives. He is at work. Now, as we've gone through Genesis, we've talked a lot about Satan's attack on the family. And we can see that in our culture. Our culture encourages the exact opposite of what the Bible teaches us. The culture encourages single people to get married and married people to get divorced. No one's ever happy with where they are. They always want to be on the other side. And what we have to remember that this is God's choice, not our own. It is God's will. It's okay to be married and it's okay to be single as long as we are seeking, seeking sanctification first. God's will first. Some of the best examples I thought of the first one for being married, Jim Elliot. Jim Elliot was a martyr. He was murdered in South America by a, a tribe that had never heard the gospel. And Jim Elliot would have been long forgotten and long ignored if it hadn't been for his wife, who went back to that tribe, forgave them, and shared the gospel with them. Because they were married, because they were together, God's will was done. As a married couple, they sought God's will first. Now, as a single person, of course, we have to bring up the single people as well. And every time I get a chance to talk about her, I will. Corey Tenboom. Corey Tenboom was able to hide 800 Jews from the Nazis because she still lived at home with her parents, because she was single. She sought God's will first, not her own happiness. So what we see is the sovereignty of God in marriage. God decides who we will marry not us. We also, through all of this, see Genesis 50-20 at work. We've talked about that a little bit. It's the thesis of Genesis. Right? We know it as also Romans 8-28. God uses all things together for the good of those who love him. But God is sinlessly using man's sin to accomplish God's will. I'll say that again. God sinlessly uses man's sin to accomplish his will. Because what Laban and Leah do here is wrong. It is wrong. There is no doubt about that. But God will bring it about for his will. Once we recognize God's sovereignty in marriage, we can then go on to God's sovereignty over parenthood. Uh, let's look at verse 31, and we're going to go all the way down to 24 of the next chapter. When the Lord saw that Leah was unloved, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. So Leah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Reuben, for she said, The Lord has surely looked on my affliction. Now therefore my husband will love me. Then she conceived again and bore a son, and said, Because the Lord has heard that I am loved, unloved, he has therefore given me this son also. And she called his name Simeon. She conceived again and bore a son, and said, Now this time my husband will become attached to me, because I have borne him three sons. Therefore his name was called Levi. And she conceived again and bore a son, and said, Now I will praise the Lord. Therefore she called his name Judah, then she stopped bearing. Now when Rachel saw that she bore Jacob no children, Rachel envied her sister and said to Jacob, Give me children or else I die. And Jacob's anger was aroused against Rachel. And he said, Am I in the place of God who has withheld from you the fruit of the womb? So she said, Here is my maid Bilhah. Go unto her and she will bear a child on my knees, that I also may have children by her. Then she gave him Bilhah, her maid, his wife, and Jacob went into her. And Bilhah conceived and bore Jacob a son. 
Then Rachel said, God has judged my case, and he has also heard my voice and given me a son. Therefore she called his name Dan. And Rachel's maid Bilhah conceived again and bore Jacob a second son. Then Rachel said, With great wrestlings I have wrestled with my sister, and indeed I have prevailed. So she called his name Naphtali. Then Leah saw that she had stopped bearing. She took Zilpah, her maid, and gave her to Jacob, his wife. And Leah's maid Zilpah bore Jacob a son. Then Leah said, A troop comes. So she called his name Gad. And Leah's maid Zilpah bore Jacob a second son. Then Leah said, I am happy, for the daughters will call me blessed. So she called his name Asher. Now Reuben went into the day it went in the days of wheat harvest and found mandrakes in the field and brought them to his mother Leah. Then, Ra then Rachel said to Leah, "Please give me some of your son's mandrakes." But she said to her, "Is it a small matter that you have taken away my husband? Would you take my, away my son's mandrakes also?" And Rachel said, "Therefore he will lie with you tonight for your son's mandrakes." When Jacob came out of the field in the evening, Leah went out to meet him and said, You must come in to me, for I have surely hired you with my son's mandrakes. And he lay with her that night. And God listened to Leah, and she conceived and bore Jacob a fifth son. Leah said, God has given me my wages because I have given my maid to my husband. So she called his name Issachar. Then Leah conceived again and bore Jacob a sixth son. And Leah said, God has endowed me with a good endowment. Now my husband will dwell with me because I have borne him six sons. So she called his name Zebulon. Afterwards, she bore a daughter and called her name Dinah. Then God remembered Rachel, and God listened to her and opened her womb. And she conceived and bore a son and said, God has taken away my reproach. So she called his name Joseph and said, the Lord shall add to me another son. Whew, all of this children's, right? There's a whole lot of kids being born right here through a whole lot of messed up reasons, all right? But we have to remember, and this is the big thing, no matter how much I forget it, children are a blessing. Children are a blessing from God. And we see that in Jacob's words. Am I in the place of God that I can give you kids? In, in fact, children are without a doubt given to us only by God. Only by God do we have children. And again, we also see God's, this wonderful, loving creator with a, a sick sense of irony, as I now have to debate with a smaller version of myself, right? That's not always fun. It's very tragic. <laughs> Jacob, like Isaac, creates a divided and contentious home. He plays favorites. To remember, though, we need to remember that as things get crazy in all of this, unloved doesn't mean abused. The sisters would have lived in, in separate tents, in separate houses, and Jacob would have spent the night variously. Of course, he would have spent time with Rachel more than Leah because he loved Rachel, not Leah. All right? So we do remember that unloved doesn't mean abused. It simply means that he chose one over the other. He played favorites. He played favorites with his wives, and then he would play favorites with his kids. That's not a good look for Jacob. All right? But let's look at all of the children. All right, let's start with Leah. Leah ends up having six kids herself. She starts with Reuben, which means see a son. As if to say, see, I give you a son, Jacob. Now come love me. Come love me. That doesn't work. So she has Simeon, one who hears. This referring to God, who hears her cry, and so gives her Simeon to love her. Still not enough for Jacob. She has Levi. Now at three sons, you would think Jacob would now be attached to Leah. And so Levi means attached because she wants Jacob to be attached to her, not Rachel. Still doesn't work that way. Finally, Judah, which means praise. 
Well, she finally says, fine, then I'm going to praise God. I'm going to praise God for what he's given me. And there's a pause here, a break in the narrative, as Rachel starts to have this fight with Jacob and says, give me children. And he says, I can't, right? And now some servants get involved. And, throw, and so we'll get to the servants in a second, but Leah has two more children herself. She has Issachar, which means reward or wage. And it's because Issachar was her wage for the mandrakes. They actually sold their husband's time for some fruit that he found in the field. That's actually what happened there. Um, <laughs> and then Zebulon, which means honor or, or house, because she wanted Jacob to honor her. She wanted Jacob to come live in her house. And then finally, she has the only mentioned daughter. There is other daughters that are born, but the only one that is mentioned, Dinah, which means judgment. And she has a story that we'll get to in a, in a week or so. Leah then has two more children through Zilpah, her maid. This was a common practice in the ancient East. Uh, the, the, the servant would actually have the child while sitting on the knees of the mistress. Right? And it was actually meant to make the, it was the, the mistress's kid and not the servant's kid. It's, it's kind of a little strange for us, but it was fairly common. Didn't make it right, but it was common. In fact, we saw something similar with Hagar and Abraham, right? Hagar was Sarah's servant, and he had, Sarah had a kid through Hagar. But she has two more kids, Gad, which means luck has come, and Asher, which means blessed or happy. But each of these kids have their moments as we go through Genesis. Each of these kids have their moments. And what we see is a very sad story being told with Leah. A very sad story as she is clearly seeking affection from her husband that he simply won't give her. She's trying to get her husband to fill the God-shaped hole in her heart. And it's not working. And this is a very sad situation. She put herself here by agreeing to Laban's plan. In some sense, this is her also reaping what she has sown. She got herself here. She schemed and tricked as well. But what we do finally see is that her story has a happy ending. Literally, her last son is named Happy or Blessed. God redeems her story. And by the end of it, she has her kids, and she is happy. She says, Asher, happy blessed. We should also know that she is the one buried with Jacob. Rachel is not. So God redeems that story, and God gives her what she asked her for. Now we go to Rachel. Rachel starts by having children through her surge. She has Bilhah, and she has Dan, which means vindication. Vindication. Rachel had been vindicated. She finally had her son. She had finally, the, the judge had finally chosen her. Then she has Naphtali, which means my struggle. Struggle specifically with her sister. Later on, when we get to Leviticus law, this type of marriage is strictly forbidden. You are not to marry your, a woman and her sister. And you can see reasons why. I can't imagine the contentiousness here, right? Thanksgiving dinner would have been very awkward, right? They didn't have Thanksgiving. That's a joke, right? Uh, struggle, right? Naphtali means my struggle. A struggle for not being able to have her own son. Struggle with her sister. And finally, at the very end, Rachel has a son. Finally, we see Rachel is able to do it. Joseph. Joseph means take away and add. Take away. It's taken away her shame. 
taken away her reproach. She is now able to bear children. She has her son. And Joseph is, of course, where our narrative will pick up later. Joseph is going to be the most important son of this group. Joseph will get the covenant blessing from Jacob. Joseph will be Jacob's favorite. Joseph will be the one who is mostly important. Also be one of the clearest Christ archetypes, archetypes, excuse me, one of the clearest Christ archetypes in the Old Testament. But we'll get to him. He's coming. He has plenty of this narrative. We don't need to take up Jacob's time for Joseph. Okay. Later, not here, later, Rachel will also have Benjamin. Benjamin's min Benjamin means son of my right hand. He also has a story that we will get to. But each of these kids, each of these 12 sons, have, have their part to play. Have their part to play. They're all important in the history of Israel. These, of course, are the 12 tribes. These are the 12 tribes that God breaks them into. Again, going back to our culture, our culture has completely devalued children completely devalued children. Satan has, Satan has attacked children remarkably easily in the last 70 years. Many churches even hold pro-abortion stances. Our culture has become very much against children. Ohio, just this past week or so, passed an abortion to the point of birth bill. Colorado has long been considered one of the most pro-abortion states in the union. And it's no longer even hidden that it is because of selfishness and convenience. It's simply a hatred of children, of babies. We, as a family, have been very appreciative of how this church has accepted our children. You would be surprised, shocked, how many times we go to a church, and every time one of our kids makes a noise, every time one of them does something, dirty looks, glares, something like that, because people just don't value children. We have, we've had many arguments about us keeping our children with us during the service because of how important that is. The principle here is that God used this mess of a family, and it is a mess. It is an absolute mess, with favorite children, favorite wives, wives trading their husband for potted plants, servants getting involved. God uses this mess Right? uses this mess for his perfect will. For his perfect will. And if God can use this mess, then you can rest assured he's using our mess as well. Anything we take to him, he can use for his good and perfect will as well. I'd also encourage all of us to find ways to help families with children. And this is a lot trickier than it seems. This is a lot trickier than it seems because we also shouldn't seek to separate parents and children. Oftentimes when people come to ask us if we need help, it's very often, hey, can we get you a date night? Can we get you away from your kids? That's not helpful. Our kids learn through us. We need to encourage parents without taking their responsibility to parents away from them. It is the parents' job to parent their kids. The final part of the story that I want to focus on today, the final part of the story is God's sovereignty over our work. Let's look at verses 25 through 43. 
And it came to pass when Rachel had born Joseph that Jacob said to Laban, send me away, that I may go to my own place and to my country. Give me my wives and my children for whom I have served and let me go, for you know my servant which I have done for you. And Laban said to him, Please stay, if I have found favor in your eyes, for I have learned by experience the Lord has blessed me for your sake. Then he said, Name your wages, I will give it. So Jacob said to him, You know how I have served you, and how your livestock has been with me. For what you had had before I came was little, and has increased to a great amount. The Lord has blessed you since my coming, and now when shall I also provide for my own house? So he said, What shall I give you? Jacob said, You shall not give me anything. If you will do this thing for me, I will again feed and keep your flocks. Let me pass through all your flock today, removing from there all the speckled and spotted sheep and all the brown ones among the lambs and the spotted and speckled among the goats, and these shall be my wages. So my righteousness will answer for me in time to come. When the subject of my wages come before you, every one that is not speckled and spotted among the goats and brown among the lambs will be considered stolen if it is with me. And Laban said, Oh, that it were according to your word. So he removed that day the male goats that were speckled and spotted, all the female goats that were speckled and spotted, every one that had some white in it, and all the brown ones among the lambs, and gave them into the hand of his son. Then he put three days' journey between himself and Jacob, and Jacob fed the rest of Laban's flocks. Now Jacob took for himself rods of green poplar, and the almond and chestnut trees peeled white strips in them, and exposed the white which was in the rods. And the rods which he had peeled he set before the flocks in the gutters, in the watering troughs where the flocks came to drink, so that they should conceive when they came to drink. So the flocks conceived before the rods, and the flocks brought forth streaked, speckled, and spotted. Then Jacob separated the lambs and made the flocks face toward the streaked and all the brown in the flock of Laban. But he put his own flocks by themselves and did not put them with Laban's flock. And it came to pass, whenever the stronger livestock conceived, and Jacob placed the rods before the eyes of the livestock in the gutters, that they might conceive among the rods. But when the flocks were feeble, he did not put them in. So the feebler were Laban's and the stronger Jacob's. Thus the man became exceedingly prosperous, and he had large flocks, female and male servants, and camels and donkeys. So Jacob and Laban agree to a work deal. Jacob has worked for Laban for 14 years already. He's going to stay there for another six or seven, depending on how you look at it. Right? Another deal here. And what we see is Laban still trying to trick Jacob. The, the speckled, the spotted, the street, those are recessive traits, right? They're, they're not things that goats should be born with. Uh, J- Jacob clearly knows a little bit about husbandry, animal husbandry. He's worked with goats his entire life. He knows how to breed them. But what we see is that Jacob is a hard worker. Jacob is a hard worker. He works hard and he is a good shepherd. He takes care of the flock. He looks out for them. And when because and when Jacob works hard, we also see a good and pleasing God bless Jacob's work. He blesses Jacob's work because Jacob suffers much with Laban. There's a lot of nonsense being going on here. He suffered much, 21 years of service, and Jacob stays faithful and obedient to God. Again, we see our culture at work here against man's desire and need to work. Our culture does the exact opposite. Our culture tells people that the government will take care of us, tells people that work is the problem, that we need to get away from work, that we should be seeking retirement as quickly and as fast as we can. And what we see is millions of unhappy people with nothing to do because we are taught that work is the problem instead of the solution. 
Work is the solution, not the problem. Work is the solution, excuse me. Work is a solution, not the problem. The principle to take here is that we are called to remain faithful and obedient. Faithful and obedient. God will bless our work as he sees fit. And I'm going to share Colossians 3, 23 through 24, one of my life verses. Whatever you do, work heartily, as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. We work for God. We do not work for man. Okay. There is, however, one more lesson I think we can take out of this. There is one more lesson. I want to take a moment and discuss these branches. This weird branch thing that Jacob does. Because it's, it's really goofy. And, and depending on which commentator you choose to look at, the importance changes. Um, some commentators say, this is just pure superstition. This did nothing. It's absolutely nothing. Uh, that was... Warren Wearsby, that's what he said, right? This is superstition, this is God's will. But then you have, like, John MacArthur, and I really respect and I like John MacArthur a lot. He says that those branches kind of work as, a, as an aphrodisiac for goats. And, and that blew my mind, because that was a really weird thing to say. And then you have others that are saying, okay, because the goats looked at speckled trees, the kids came out as speckled, and, you know, this whole thing became really weird and strange. And, and it caused a whole lot of issues with, with how I was studying. Let me give you some examples here. So I had some questions for all of this, right? If the branches worked as some sort of aphrodisiac, then why wasn't this common practice? Why wasn't everyone doing it? Israel appears to have continued this practice. Uh, it seems like it would be a big deal in the shepherding industry. They were known as shepherds. They would have kept doing this. If you had something that made goats breed more, you would want to keep using that to get more goats, right? If staring at speckles makes the goats speckled, then why doesn't it work for other patterns? We're all farmers out here. If I have a cow look at a polka-dotted thing, does he come out polka-dotted? And we know that's not going to happen, right? Uh, and I can understand that you know this made the animals stay there and breed and do all this stuff, but he could have done a whole lot of things. This seemed like a very specific thing. So I had to lean towards Warren Wiersbe and say, I think this is superstition. God blessed who he chose to bless. And that, and that just made sense to me. You have something similar with the mandrakes. Mandrakes were believed to help with fertility. Believed to help with fertility. Other commentators said they do nothing. And so it's strange. You don't quite know what to do with it or how to take it. But this isn't the first time this has come up. There's been several times we're already in Genesis, only up to chapter 30. I've seen different things in different commentators and kind of had to pick a side a side that made the most sense for me that I came up here and presented. Genesis 6, uh, when it talks about sons of God bearing daughters of men, many commentators, including John MacArthur, interpret sons of men as being angels. Angels breeding with women. And again, I had a whole lot of problems with that, a whole lot of questions that didn't make any sense. I guess I'm just a speculative you know, guy and it didn't make sense to me. And I can see their point. I understand where they're getting it from. But for me, it makes more problems than it solves. It creates more problems than it solves. Angels mixing with humans makes for an interesting story, but doesn't seem to get us anywhere as far as what the Bible is trying to do. The same thing actually happens with the birth order of Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Depending on how Genesis 10, 21, some of your Bibles could say Shem was older. Some of your Bibles could say that Japheth was older. And you can go down a pretty weird rabbit hole. 
Uh, in fact, after several hours of weird Google searching, I'm no smarter than I was before. And you get some really strange things when you start Googling, you know, breeding of goats and <laughs> papa trees and things like that. <laughs> and this is my final point. My final point is that these disagreements are not contradictions or detractions within the Bible. It's simply us not having all of the information. They're not important enough for God to have explained fully for us. That's all it is. We just don't have all the information, and when we get to heaven, we can ask these questions. I'm sure God will have a very understandable answer that we never saw in the first place anyway. But these moments are for us to discuss and debate and to agree to disagree. As much as, I, as much as I struggle with what some of the things John MacArthur has said, I would still relish the chance to get to meet the man, sit under the man, learn from the man. The man is an amazing wealth of Bible information. These should be fun, honest debates that we have with friends late into the night because, hey, look at this verse, and hey, look at this verse. It's just fun. But we have to recognize these moments as the fun, silly disagreements we can have because they are in stark contrast to moments where we cannot agree to disagree. And there's a lot of moments where we cannot agree to disagree. I've mentioned several today. Issues that if, that if we were to try to find unity, we would be in sin. Issues like abortion, issues like communism, issues like homosexuality. If we were to seek unity with people who held those, we would actually be in sin. Those sins are wrong. And what we're seeing in our world is that this is appearing more and more. It doesn't take much of a, again, a YouTube search, a Google search, to see pastors standing at a pulpit and saying these things that are downright heretical and unchristian. There are moments where we need to have a backbone and stand up and know what we believe. Gospel, heaven and hell, life and death issues where we are not called to seek unity, but to be obedient to God. And we cannot compromise. We cannot compromise. When someone denies the inerrancy of the Bible, when someone denies clear and stated and obvious sin, when someone teaches against the Bible, they are wrong and they are not to be appeased. False teachers are everywhere, and I, I, I see them growing and becoming more and more prevalent. False teachers are everywhere, and we must be on guard against them. We should seek unity where unity can be found, but rest assured that God is in control. He is sovereign over all the moments of our life. And just like Jacob, when we can trust in the Lord with all our hearts, and lean not on our own understanding, we can know that God is working all things together for the good of those who love him. Let's go to the Lord in prayer.